Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Acts 19, verses 1 through 22. And before we read that, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the name of Jesus by which we are saved. And uh, we do know that at the name of Jesus, every uh, tongue will confess and every knee will bow uh, because Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would increasingly convince us of this truth, that we would confess and bow before the name of Jesus, and that we would worship and adore him, that we would praise him and delight in him, and that he would be glorified in and through us. Uh, I pray that you would uh, use your word this morning to that end uh, by the power of your spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. There are dangers in talking about power. In the church, talk of power might put you in the camp with televangelists, right? Preachers who promise power in some vague way, uh, power to make your life everything you've always wanted it to be. All you have to do is tap into the power of the Spirit in some way. There are others, of course, who react to that in a kind of self-proclaimed grace-centeredness, which really masks kind of this fatalistic pietism, is sometimes summed up with the bumper sticker spirituality that Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. And so what is sometimes implied by that is my life is miserable and my sin runs rampant and there's no hope of that changing in the here and now, but God forgives me and it will all turn out right in the end. And so you have the power hungry on the one hand and the power less on the other. There's another danger, though, of talking about power for me, and that is fear. Uh, Fear that you will look at my life and say, he has no idea what he's talking about. His life is full of sin and weakness. He's not living some victorious Christian life. Uh, He's barely limping along, barely making it from day to day, because that is the way I feel most days. And I guess that misses the point, though, on at least two levels. One, it focuses in the wrong place, because I'm not preaching my power, but Christ's, after all. It's true that I am weak and sinful, but Christ is not. Scripture says that he is mighty to save. Second, it misunderstands Christ's power. Christ has saved at the cross. Christ is saving us by the work of his Spirit. He will save us finally on and completely on the last day. And so uh, Christ's work for us is complete in the cross and the resurrection, but Christ's work in us is ongoing. And so to point to the sin and struggles in the life of the Christian to prove that somehow Christ is powerless misunderstands Christ's working in us, a work that will not be complete until the last day, until the resurrection. And so my message uh, this morning, of course, is not, you know, uh, like the televangelists, look how rich I am. If you trust in Christ, you can have all this too. Nor is it sort of the more sanctified version of that, right? Look at how holy I am. If you trust in Christ, you can be this holy too. No, in my weakness, I want to talk about Christ's power. And the book of Acts is about Christ's power, Right? If you're skeptical, let me just remind you of uh, Jesus' words in the beginning of the book of Acts that sort of set the trajectory for the whole book. Right, Acts 1.8, Jesus says, uh, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there is, there is power coursing through the book of Acts, right? The power at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down and tongues of fire rests on the head of the disciples and they speak in languages that they did not know. There's power when 3,000 are converted in one day. Power when the the lame man is healed. Power when evil spirits are cast out. Power when Gentiles are converted. 
There is power when the apostles are persecuted and jailed and threatened and beaten and then get up and continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. There is power made available in the gospel, a power which comes to us in our weakness. That's why we often misunderstand gospel power, right? Because we think empowerment, that must mean that I somehow become powerful. Or worse, that I begin to feel powerful. But the power that God gives comes only when we are weak. And so we have to be willing to be weak in order to be strong. And here's what we need to see this morning. That is that there is power in Jesus' name for God's glory and for our good, but it is not a power that's at our disposal. Right? It is for us, but it's not controlled by us. There is power in Jesus' name for our good, but not at our disposal. So we're going we're gonna to look at that a little bit this morning. You can see the outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. There are three points there. We're going to talk about believing in Jesus' name. Ask the question, where is power found? Talk about misusing Jesus' name. And answer the question, what is this power for? And then we'll talk about valuing Jesus' name and ask, where does this power lead? So we're, in the end, we're going to talk about sort of the source Uh, the purpose, and the end of this gospel power. So first we'll look at believing in Jesus' name. Where where is power found? Uh, Again, our lives uh, tend to be either either power-hungry or powerless or really probably some combination of the two. And and that not just in the Christian life, but in general, right? We often feel pushed and pulled uh, out of control, wishing things were different, feeling hopeless, feeling discouraged, feeling powerless, And when that happens, we tend to look around for power, for any kind of power, right? For political power or economic power or academic power, right? We we, we try to use psychological manipulation or physical dominance or social status, right? Whatever we can find, we strive to gain power so we can have some sense of control over the world around us. We look to every tool that the world has to offer. But of course, that's not the power that Jesus is talking about in Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit's power does not come through politics or technology or reputation, but through faith in the name of Jesus. And there's this interesting story here in Acts 19. In fact, there are really a couple interesting stories here in Acts 19, 1 through 22. Uh, But in the first one, Paul comes back to the city of Ephesus. He meets this group of disciples Something apparently doesn't seem quite right to Paul because he asks them in verse 2, he says, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they uh, respond, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, uh, since they were baptized into John's baptism, which is what verse 3 tells us, uh, they clearly know that there is a Holy Spirit. John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit Uh, that was to come. And so they must mean something like, we didn't know that the Holy Spirit had yet been given. It's similar to in John's gospel, when when, uh, John, as the narrator of John's gospel, says the Spirit was not because Jesus was not glorified. Uh, John doesn't mean that the Spirit didn't exist, right? The Spirit existed, uh, we see, uh, from, well, from before the world began, right? Being the third person of the Trinity. We see him at work in the book of Genesis, Chapter 1, 
So John must mean something like the Spirit had not yet come. And that's exactly what these disciples must have meant here. Like, we, we didn't know that the Spirit had yet come. We didn't know that, that he was, that he was here. John the Baptist had promised that one, the one who came after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit, but these disciples apparently didn't realize that Jesus had come. Uh, they sound a little like Apollos from last week, you may remember, but maybe even more out of the loop. Paul then explains to them that Jesus has come in verse 4, and they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul lays his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they begin to speak in tongues. And we're told that there are 12 men in all. Again, it's, it's kind of an odd little story, I think. It's important to always ask, though, why a biblical writer includes a particular story, right? Luke could have left this out, uh, but he includes it here. Uh, for uh, a purpose. In a moment, we'll, we'll see some connections with the two stories that follow, but first I want you to step back and think about sort of the grand sweep of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is, uh, what is Acts about? Acts is about Jesus laying the foundation of his church. He, he does that through the Spirit and by his apostles. He appointed them in Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses in three places or three regions, three areas, in the city of Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, which are the regions around Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth. And by placing this story here, I think actually what Luke is doing is he's telling us uh, that this foundation-laying work of the apostles is, is actually just about complete. It's coming to an end. Why would I say that? Well, in Acts 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, we see the apostles witness in Jerusalem. It's kind of the first stage of their witness. Uh, you have Pentecost in chapter 2, where Jesus once for all pours out his spirit on the church in visible power. Near the end of that section, in chapter 6, verse 7, we're told the word of God continued to increase. So there's this summary of what happened in 1 through 6, and that summary is the word of God continued to increase. And then we have chapters 8 through 12. Chapters 8 through 12 are the apostles' witness in uh, Judea and Samaria. Uh, again, we have uh, a kind of Samaritan Pentecost in chapter 8, or better, uh, maybe call it an echo of Pentecost, to demonstrate that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for Samaritans as well. We have another echo in chapter 10, when the Gentiles are officially brought into the kingdom and receive the Spirit at the preaching of Peter. In the end of that section, chapters 8 through 12, in chapter 12, verse 24, again, we have this phrase, the word of God increased and multiplied. So chapters 1 through 6 end with this phrase or have this phrase near the end. Chapters uh, then uh, 8 through 12 do the same. And then we have uh, Acts 13 through 19 or 20, somewhere around there, right where we are, where we see the, the apostles witness to the ends of the earth. Uh, the end of the earth, at least if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem. And uh, that, that in that, uh, those chapters, the gospel is taking root in this truly Gentile territory. And here in 19, we have one final echo of Pentecost. Uh, these are probably Jewish believers, followers of John the Baptist that, that understood a bit about Jesus, but not the whole story. Uh, they are an anomaly, of course, that could only happen in that generation. Right? You might have an analogous situation today, but there can't be the same situation today. Uh, unless there are followers of John the Baptist still in the world who have not yet heard about the risen Jesus, right? Not likely. Uh, but notice the lengths that Luke goes through to tie this story to the earlier stories. 
right? Mention of John's baptism, as Jesus mentioned it in Acts chapter 1. Uh, they are then baptized in the name of Jesus, as Peter said on Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. There's then the laying on, on, on of hands, right? Paul lays his hands on these disciples, just as Peter laid his hands on the Samaritans earlier. The result in both cases is the same. The people receive the Holy Spirit. Then there's the speaking in tongues and the prophesying. Luke clearly, uh, as you read through Acts, Luke doesn't imply that this happened every time someone was baptized or every time someone received the Spirit, but he mentions it at key points. Key points in the story when the gospel breaks through to a new people group, Jew and then Samaritan and finally Gentile. And then you have this mention in verse 7 that there are 12 men which seems kind of like a throwaway line. Oh, by the way, there were 12 of these men. And in some ways, I don't think that number has any particular significance except to echo the 12 apostles in the early chapter of Acts. So again, I think Luke is trying to tell us that this foundation-laying work of the church, which began at Pentecost, is now coming to completion. And if you're still skeptical, right, notice chapter 19, verse 20, near the end of our passage, there's the third and final mention of the increase of, of the word. Verse 20 says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So there's this third mention that the word, third and final mention that the word increased. Okay, so you might ask then, well, if their foundation laying work was coming to a completion, the apostolic mission was being completed, then why doesn't Acts just end at chapter 19, verse 20? Right? We could be done with the book of Acts and move on, right? Uh, well, look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And really the remaining nine chapters of Acts are all about Paul's journey to Rome. It's not a straight journey, but it is about his journey to Rome. Similar to the Gospels where Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem at some point, Right? So the, the one period of his earthly ministry is over and he sets his face to the next and final stage of his earthly ministry in the Gospels. There's this real transitioning happen, transition happening here. And I think Luke's purpose is, is uh, telling us that this story at, at this point, his purpose of telling this story at this point is to signal that transition, right? to bracket out the time between Pentecost and this church of Ephesus as a completed mission with one final step left, right? which is Paul's journey to Rome. Of course, we'll look at that more as we look at Paul's journey. That said, okay, so that might explain why Luke tells this story at this point, but um, more can be said about the story. Uh, so what's central to each of these three stories in, in verses 1 through 22 is the name of the Lord Jesus. Look, it's, it's there in verse 5. Uh, they're baptized into the name of the, the Lord Jesus. It's there in verse 13. It's there in verse 17. Each story, the name of the Lord Jesus is central. And the first thing that Luke shows us about the name of the Lord Jesus is that the Holy Spirit comes through this name. The disciples have already been baptized into John's baptism. Uh, they had some understanding of the kingdom, but they didn't yet know Jesus, at least not rightly. Paul preaches Jesus and baptizes them into the name of Jesus, a distinct baptism from baptism, uh, the baptism of John. And they receive the gift of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit comes through the name of Jesus. And, and think about this for a second, right? These men knew something. They believed in God. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They received the baptism of John. They, they must have known that John pointed toward the coming Messiah, but they did not yet know Jesus. 
Now, again, nobody's in that same position today, as we've already said, but, but there, there is a kind of modern analogy. How many people in America today believe in God? They pray to God. They attribute providential circumstances to God. They have some trust that God is going to work everything out. They, talking about God makes them feel good. Uh, they have, you know, the serenity prayer memorized. They, they may even go to church. They may see God and God's morality as the root of our nation, or they may see God as endorsing their political causes, whether on the right or on the left. But in all of their talk of God, trust in God and prayer to God, you listen, and like Paul, you realize something's missing. With all of our talk of God, does that simply mask the fact that we don't know Jesus? There is no power in a generic God. Peter said, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the one who died for our sin. He is the one who defeated death in his resurrection. He is Lord of all. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has poured out his spirit on the church. He will come again to judge the world on the last day. Not a generic God, but Jesus the Messiah. Do you believe in Jesus? Not just God in some general or generic way, but do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I, I promise you there is power in his name, the power of the Spirit, as we see in the book of Acts. But of course, that brings us then to the next point, which is about misusing Jesus' name. And what is this power for? Now, as we mentioned before, uh, when we feel weak and powerless, our tendency is to try to gain control. Sometimes we run to manipulation or politics or technology in the hopes that we might make our situations a little bit better. Uh, we think, if I can just improve my circumstances, if I can just change my boss or my children or my spouse or my neighbor, if I can get a new job or move to a new town or find some new friends, if I can just find the right app or read the right self-help blog or listen to the right podcast or vote in the right politician, then I can take charge of my life and then my world will be a little bit better. When life seems out of control, I roll up my sleeve and I just start changing things. This can be even worse as Christians, actually, because we can think that God is on our side. And so we seek to use God to make our lives better. I mean, how many of our prayers are filled with essentially, uh, God, make my life easy and carefree. Change my situation, God. Take this person out of it. Change this person's attitude. How often do we claim this Bible verse or that with a confident expectation that, that God wants to bless me and the subtext is, uh, bless me the way I want to be blessed. And so we become Christians only to enlist God in our self-improvement program. And of course, you don't even have to be a Christian to abuse God in this way, right? The seven sons of Sceva were not Christians, but they did know power when they saw it. Verse 11 is... Uh, an interesting verse. And a, a few other versions bring out the sense maybe a bit better than the ESV. The King James Version says, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Right? Not just miracles, special miracles. Uh, there, there's something odd going on, I think is Luke's point. Something even out of the ordinary for miracles. The message, uh, or the, the New Living Translation says, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. And the message says God did powerful things through Paul, things quite out of the ordinary. 
Uh, two things are brought out here, right? One is the word power, right? That the, the word miracles here is simply uh, the word for powerful things. Paul was doing powerful things. But second, Luke is very clear that what God is doing was odd even for miracles. And so verses uh, 11 to 12 say this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Again, Luke recognized how odd these miracles were. And, and I think we're bound to say that God somehow used these items to point people to Jesus. Why, why must we say that? Well, because way back in Acts chapter 3, when Peter healed the lame beggar, the people are all utterly astounded at what's going on. And Peter replies, men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Rather, Peter goes on to say, his name, that is the name of Jesus, and by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of all. See, the power of healing is not in handkerchiefs or aprons. It's, it's not even in Peter or Paul power of healing is in the name of Jesus. And the sons of Sceva, though, they, they pick up on this. And uh, Sceva is identified here as a Jewish high priest. Uh, there's a, a slight problem, right, because there was no Jewish high priest named Sceva. And uh, as one commentator put it, if Luke had quotes available, he would have put them around high priest. See, Sceva was no more a high priest than your average snake oil salesman was a doctor. But you see, uh, Jewish people in the ancient world were known for being spiritual, which meant Jewish titles impressed, impressed your average Gentile. And so these seven sons of Sceva were, were frauds, but they must have seen or heard about Paul. And so they seek uh, to cast out demons by saying, verse 13, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, I don't know if you've seen the, the movie The Mummy uh, back in 1999, not the recent movie The Mummy, but 1999, a little bit ago. And uh, there's this scene where there's this character trying to protect himself from the mummy, and he, he pulls out one religious trinket after another. And he begins to pray, first to the Christian God, and then to Allah, and then to Buddha, right? And he just keeps praying through different gods. Uh, he, he didn't actually believe in any particular god, but he was happy for the protection of any god who would listen, that's these sons of Sceva, right? They don't believe in Jesus. They're not trusting in him. But, but if he works, they're happy to use his power. The problem is it didn't work. Uh, verses 15 and 16, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. See, these sons of Sceva, they, they, they get it wrong on at least two points. On the one hand, they use Jesus' name like a magic talisman. It's true. Uh, power did come through the name of Jesus, but that, that power didn't come through Jesus' name as a magic word. Right? Peter in Acts 4 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But of course, Peter doesn't mean it's, it's the name itself that saves us, as if we just recite the name Jesus enough times and then God forgives our sins. No, it's Jesus who saves, the person. We call on him by calling on his name. As it is written, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
See, names are signifiers of people and things. And when we address someone's name, we address or bring that person to mind. And so when the Jewish council asks Peter, by what power or name did you heal the lame beggar in chapter 4? And Peter says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Again, Peter doesn't mean that the name, quote, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that those words healed the lame man. What he means is the man who is identified as Jesus Christ of Nazareth healed the lame man. The sons of Sceva used Jesus' name as a talisman, not, not as a means of submitting to Jesus the king, uh, not, not because they bowed before him, not because they trusted him. And they weren't the only ones, actually. Verse 13 says that some itinerant Jews, uh, Jewish exorcists did this. Not just these seven sons, but some. And in fact, there's, there's one ancient manuscript, this, this source outside of the Bible, uh, that instructs magicians. So it's a... It's a uh, a manuscript all about teaching magicians how to do magic in the ancient world. And it says uh, that they should use this phrase, I adjure thee by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. Jesus' name is reduced to hocus pocus. Right. But that's not the only thing they got wrong, these sons of Sceva, right? They not only use Jesus' name as a talisman, but thereby they use God as a means for their own end. See, these seven sons are not calling on the name of Jesus. They're not bowing before the majesty of Jesus. They were using the name of Jesus to further their career. You can, you can almost uh, hear them talking to one another beforehand. Hey, if, if this works like it did for Paul, we can take the show on the road. Right? We, we can be real exorcists. We can make a name for ourselves. And as funny as this scene is, sadly, it's not actually as far removed as you might think from reality. See, see, many people use the name of Jesus as a talisman, or a crucifix, or a Bible, even, or some such thing. And what's worse, even when we're free from that kind of superstition, we're all liable to use God as a means for our own ends. Right? We, see, we see God as a means to our happiness, or as a means to a happy marriage, or a means to better grades, or a means to obedient kids. And, and at its best, and this is still wrong, right? We think if I just obey the Bible, then my life will go well. Everything's going to work out. We become Christians not because we adore the majesty of God or because we're convicted of the weight of our sin, not because we see clearly the mercy of God in Jesus in the cross. We become Christians because we think God has a wonderful plan for our lives, and we just hope just maybe that plan will match up with ours. <coughs> And even if our Christian life doesn't start out like that, sometimes it slips into that, if we're honest. Maybe we end up bitter, even, thinking that God has failed us. He didn't make our lives all lollipops and sunshine as we thought. And we begin to think, Jesus doesn't work. We thought there was power in the name of Jesus, but now we're not so sure. You see, we've been duped. We've been duped because Jesus is not a power to be manipulated. He's a person to be adored. We want power to wow, right? Jesus brings us power to save. The power of Christ doesn't, is, is not there to bring finances, but forgiveness. The power of Christ is not there to, to change our situations in the now. He, he may do that, but he may not. In fact, sometimes when we become Christians, our situations get worse because persecution comes and additional suffering. No, the power of Christ is not to make our situations all better. The power of Christ is there to change us. 
And it is true. Jesus will make all things new on the last day, right? That's our hope. But even those who experienced miracles had to wait for that, right? Those whose diseases left them by the hands of Paul got sick again and grew old and died. Their bodies, too, wait in the grave for the resurrection. Do you use God as a means for your own ends? Are you hoping uh, that God will just put your life back together? Do you see God as your errand boy? And don't get me wrong, right? Jesus is at work for our good. He does have a plan for us, which he will complete. But that plan is our holiness and our happiness in him despite our circumstances. He wants to give you joy, but not joy because your circumstances are better. Joy because you draw near to your Father in the midst of your struggles. God does want to give us power, but power to proclaim Jesus. Power to serve others sacrificially so that they too can know forgiveness and joy in Him. So where is power found? It's found in the name of Jesus. What is that power for? It's power to save. Power that brings forgiveness of sins, freedom from sins, slavery, the gift of the Spirit, the hope of the resurrection. That brings us to our third point, valuing Jesus' name. Where does this power lead? You know, the power of the gospel is not there to make our name great. It's there to make Jesus' name great. Look at verse 17. After this episode with the sons of Sceva, verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's interesting, uh, enough, that uh, the failure of the sons of Sceva actually brought glory to Jesus' name. The demons knew it, but it could not be controlled. See, a God in our pocket is really no God at all, right? A God who is powerful and uncontrollable, that's a God to be feared. Notice the result in verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. You know, it's interesting. Luke is... is, uh, as the writer of Acts is very astute to the Roman world, uh, he knows the character of the towns of which he speaks. Ephesus was actually so known for the magic arts in the ancient world that magic scrolls in the Roman world were called Ephesian letters. Ephesus was known for its magic scrolls. But when these magicians hear the gospel message and see the true power of Jesus' name, they repent and they turn to Christ and they give up their former ways. They realize their former attempts to manipulate the universe were foolish and weak, and they give it all up, and they set it aside, and they worship. That is what this scroll-burning episode is about, right? It's about realizing the worthlessness of what the world values, the worthlessness of the powers of control and manipulation in this age in comparison to the value of Jesus' name. Remember Jesus, right? Remember Jesus who was rich, who became poor, who was powerful, who became weak, who was born in weakness and died in weakness and buried in weakness, but he rose in power. Paul prays in his letters, uh, in his letter to Ephesus, 
He prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. See, the resurrection power of Christ is what is work in us, to renew us from the inside out. Are you feeling hopeless or powerless to overcome guilt and sin and death? Jesus offers forgiveness to overcome guilt. Jesus offers his spirit to break sin's chokehold on our lives. Jesus, who, who began a good work and you, will bring it to completion on the last day. Jesus offers resurrection. Right? Death does not have the final word. Our hope is not that we might live another year or 10 years or 50 years. Our hope is that though we die, yet we will live. And that if we die with him, we will rise with him as well. That is our hope. And this power should lead us to worship, right? to extol the name of Jesus above all else. Is that where you are? Where you see the value of Jesus' name, the value of your Lord and God? Is Jesus worth more to you than silver or gold? Do you realize that no power in the world is more important than the power of Jesus' name, his forgiving, transforming, resurrecting power? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we, we confess that we are weak. We are weak and powerless. We are broken and sinful. We come to you, Jesus, because we know that you can forgive us and remove our guilt. We know that you can break the reigning power of sin in our hearts. We know that you can renew us by your spirit. We know that you will raise us from the dead on the last day. And so we come to you, Jesus. We come to you to find life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.